Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes. This episode is a little different as we're featuring the entire event from this year's festival with Chair Lee Randall in conversation with author Douglas Stewart, who, as I'm sure some of you will have seen, was announced last week as the winner of the 2020 Booker Prize for his marvellous book, Shuggy Bane. Huge congratulations to him. Margaret Busby, 2020 Chair of the Booker Judges, said this of Shuggy Bane. Shaggy Bane is destined to be a classic, a moving, immersive and nuanced portrait of a tight-knit social world, its people and its values. The heart-wrenching story tells of the unconditional love between Agnes Bane, set on a descent into alcoholism by the tough circumstances life has dealt her, and her youngest son. Shaggy struggles with responsibilities beyond his years to save his mother from herself, at the same time as dealing with burgeoning feelings and questions about his own otherness. Gracefully and powerfully written, this is a novel that has impact because of its many emotional registers and its compassionately realised characters. The poetry in Douglas Stewart's descriptions and the precision of his observations stand out. Nothing is wasted. This is a very moving event and we hope very much that you enjoy it. So it's over to Lee Randall and her introduction to Douglas Stewart. Glasgow native Douglas Stewart attended the Royal College of Art in London before moving to New York to forge a career in design, where he worked with people like Calvin Klein and Banana Republic and Jack Spade. Shuggy Bain is his debut novel, and my goodness, what a novel it is. Along with glowing reviews on both sides of the Atlantic, it's been shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize. The judges said, we were bowled over by this first novel, which creates an amazingly intimate, compassionate, gripping portrait of addiction, courage, and love. It is a desperately sad, almost hopeful examination of family and the destructive powers of desire. Novel's also a finalist for the Kirkus Prize for Fiction, and I believe has been shortlisted for the Center for Fiction's debut novel prize. And Douglas has published some stories in The New Yorker and with Lit Hub. So Shuggy Bain is the story of a wee boy who's coming of age in 1980s Glasgow, living in rundown housing estates with his older brother and sister and their beautiful, troubled mother, Agnes. Unemployment is rampant in the city and the drug epidemic is about to kick off. Now, Shuggy adores his mom, but her alcoholism is a constant source of stress for family that is already struggling. And at the same time comes the dawning realization that he's not quite like other boys who bully him for being effeminate. I'm going to tell you, this is a novel about love, about sacrifice, about survival. And although it's set in the recent past, I believe it speaks very much to the present day when we can see that the gulf between the haves and the have-nots is just as big and just as unfair as it ever was. This is an immersive book. It's filled with Mm. vivid characters. It's a very vivid portrait of a city at a very particular time in its history. And... Uh, The heart and soul of it rests in this mother-son relationship. Now, I know that this is not a memoir, but I also know that it is is based on lived experience. So can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood and and about the remarkable women who brought you up? Uh, Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, like you say, it is not a memoir. It is a work of fiction, and it's a book that I actually started about 12 years ago. I started to sit down and write it about 12 years ago. Um, I grew up in Glasgow. I grew up in the early 80s, um, and I was the son of a single mother uh, who raised me on government benefits. We got what the city calls a Monday book and a Tuesday book uh, to sort of like raise me and sort of see me through my entire childhood. Um, My mother, unfortunately, suffered with alcoholism an entire life, my own mother, um, from some of my earliest memories, and eventually she succumbed to an addiction when I was still in high school. And so my entire life, my entire formative years was sort of spent in the world of both women and both sort of uh, addiction. And so I never knew my father. And so, uh, you know, my mother, my own mother was sort of the the center of my universe and the women that she came to be friends with and bond with. And oftentimes the women that she also suffered and struggled with through her addiction, whether that was people who identified as alcoholics uh, through the AA program or whether it was just people suffering and struggling. Uh, as you'll know, Glasgow is sometimes quite a hard city to to tell where the break line is with a good time and a bad time or with a hard drink and and, and actual addiction. And so this was just sort of the, the universe that I that I grew up in. And, and as I was sitting down and thinking about a book I wanted to write, um, 
I knew I wanted it to be fiction. I knew I wanted to sort of like celebrate the people that I knew and the and the city that I knew. Um, but I also knew that I wanted to sort of frame it in uh, a mother's point of view and also her son's point of view. And so really it's a portrait of these two uh, souls sort of uh, moving through the world. And and it's also, isn't it a way for you to give that wee boy a voice? Because you've said in other interviews that under Thatcher, you did not feel that you had a voice. Yeah, and actually, probably what I should say is we were never voiceless because um, I never felt like, certainly the boy, me as a boy, felt like I didn't have a voice. But my mother and the women like my mother were never voiceless. It was just people couldn't, didn't like to listen. Poverty is a really difficult thing for society to look at. Um, and certainly when it's women who are suffering with addiction as well, there's a harsher judgment that falls on them when a mother fails, when a woman fails, we are really quick to condemn them. And actually also, especially in literature, I think we find it easier to look at a man who is drinking and sort of going through a difficult time. We see him sometimes as a little bit of a lovable rogue or a scoundrel. I'm thinking, of course, about the work of James Kelman or, mm. or even Agnes Owens as a female writer. But there's something taboo to writing a woman and a mother and someone who is also a beautiful, brilliant, uh, promising woman and a mother uh, and sort of watching her disintegrate. But the truth is, is um, I knew women like this. I love and respect and grew up around women like this. And we, A, I never saw them reflected in anything, anything culturally, whether it was television or whether it was, um, you know, the closest you come to, and I talk about it in the book, is almost Sue Ellen Ewing in Dallas. Uh, but of course, she's an incredibly wealthy woman and living a very glamorous life. And actually her addiction doesn't look anything like fiction really looked. And so I just knew when I started to write Shuggy that I wanted to frame it there and, and just talk about it as sort of clearly as I could. Well, this seems like the perfect time to bring Agnes into the room. Uh, could you give us a little bit of a reading from the book so that we can meet her properly? Um, this is actually from the beginning of the book. Um, this is the first time we meet her heroine. And as you said, Agnes is definitely the, is the heart of the book. She is the the center that all of her children sort of revolve around. Um, and we meet her here and she's already sort of chafing at the smallness of her life. She's a woman that has a lot of very small but very realistic wants. She wants to be adored by her husband. She wants a council house with its own front door. She wants to be able to buy clothes for her children without buying them from a catalog or buying them on tick. Um, but she's already sort of starting to, to feel chafed by, by what's around her. This takes place in the Sight Hill Flats, uh, which are no longer with us, but they used to be, and I grew up there, in, uh, they used to be in the centre of Glasgow. Chapter two. Agnes Bain pushed her toes into the carpet and leaned out as far as she could into the night air. The damp wind kissed her flushed neck and pushed down inside her dress. It felt like a stranger's hand, a sign of living, a reminder of life. With a flick, she watched her cigarette doubt fall, the glowing embers dancing 16 floors down onto the dark forecourt. She wanted to show the city this claret velvet dress. She wanted to feel a little envy from strangers, to dance with men who held her crowd and close. Mostly, she wanted to take a good drink, to live a little. With a stretch of her calves, she leaned her hip bone on the window frame and let go of the ballast of her toes. Her body tipped down towards the amber city lights and her cheeks flushed with blood. She reached her arms out to the lights and for a brief moment she was flying. No one noticed the flying woman. She thought about tilting further then, dared herself to do it. How easy it would be to kid herself that she was flying until it became only falling and she broke herself on the concrete below. The high-rise flat she still shared with her mother and father pressed in against her. Everything in the room behind her felt so small, so low-ceilinged and stifling. Payday to mass day, a life bought on tick, with nothing that ever felt owned outright. To be 39 and have her husband and her three children, two of them nearly grown, all crammed together in her mammy's flat, gave her a feeling of failure. Him, her man, who when he shared her bed now seemed to lie on the very edge, made her feel angry with the little promises of better things. Agnes wanted to put her foot through it all, or to scrape it back like it was spoilt wallpaper, to get her nail under it and rip it all away. With a bored slouch, Agnes fell back into the stuffy room and felt the safety of her mammy's carpet below her feet again. The other women hadn't looked up. Peevishly, she scraped the needle across the record player. She clawed at her hairline and turned the volume up too loud. Come on, please, just the one we dance. No yet, 
spat Nan Flanagan. She was feverish and arranging silver and copper coins into neat piles. I'm about to pimp out the lot of you. Reeny Sweeney rolled her eyes and held her cards close. You have one filthy mind. Well, don't say I didn't warn you. Nan bit the end off a slab of fried fish and sucked the grease from her lips. When I'm done taking all your Minaj money at these cards, you're going to have to go home and fuck that bag of soup bones you call a husband for mayor. No chance. Reeny made a lazy sign of the cross. I've been sitting on it since Lent, and I've no intention of letting them get at it until next Christmas. She pushed a fat golden chip into her mouth. I once held off so long, I got a new colour telly in the bedroom. Brilliant. <laughs> That's always a funny line to end on, but I like that line. Brilliant. We're so very in that room. It, you know, you've, as you said, Agnes's dreams are not mad, ostentatious dreams. She's not dreaming of winning an Academy Award. She's dreaming of very small things. And I've, I've been thinking so much about her and her what she wants, which is, I think, what we all want, and the kind of love and sense of safety and a place of our own. But there's one scene that I kept coming back to when I was thinking about talking to you, which is when she was a wee girl, every night her mother would scrub her up, mm -hmm. she'd rush out the front door to greet her father. And mm -hmm. it struck me that what Agnes was always... You tell me if I'm reading too much into this. It struck me that what she was always spending the rest of her life looking for was seeing someone's face light up. To, to be able to make someone's face light up at the sight of you. That's what we're all after, isn't it? Yes, I think, I think especially when things around you are quite grey, anything you can do to shine or bring a little brightness to yourself or into the world is quite a natural thing. And I think Agnes, as the absolute darling of her mother and father's, life and and quite a beautiful child in the book and quite a turns into be a very beautiful almost vain woman um is used to having that reaction she's used to turning the heads of men she's used to other women feeling a little bit anxious around her a little bit sort of unsettled but it is a very natural feeling and i think also another thing that's a very natural thing that i've always known in my life is that sort of working class pride you have when even when you don't have something or maybe you're worried about bills or you're worried about food or you're worried about whatever it is, you present to the world the best face that you possibly can because you don't want them to know the concerns that you have or the poverty that you're living in. And that was a really powerful tool that the women I grew up around had. And these were women that took like such pride in their appearance and such pride in how they sort of presented the world because underneath that sort of veneer of it, they were hurting and they felt often quite inferior in some ways. And in fact, later in the book, what Shuggy comes to admire about his mother is that no matter how horrible the humiliation, she has the gumption or to put her lipstick back on, comb her hair, and go back out the front door, even though she knows people are talking about her. And he's looking, it seems to me, he's looking to find that same gumption within himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Shuggy, as um, I should explain, is the youngest of Agnes's three children. And as Agnes descends into her addiction, it's her three children who sort of try to save their mother from herself and also from the misogyny and the world around her. But Shuggy is her youngest child and he is coming to, he is actually, he's actually too young to understand sexuality, but it's the other men and boys and women around him that just identify him as being no right, as being too effeminate, too fussy, too precocious. And so he is sort of also dealing in a funny way with his own secret shame. Mm -hmm. And he looks at his mother, as you say, and Agnes is quite defiant in how she rejects shame. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't do it... Uh, very vocally or stridently, but she just does it in a very sort of quiet way. And she refuses to be seen as this sort of character of pity or character of poverty. And she always has her hair done. She always presents to the world. She colors in the heels on her shoes. And Shuggy learns that there's a strength in that, um, that, you know, if you are going to sort of be ostracized by people, then at least he's sort of trying to learn how to dance through it in a way. And he actually does dance through it in a few scenes. Yeah, he does. And, they, and the other very poignant thing is that Shuggy himself wants to make Agnes light up with joy at the sight of him, and it's devastating to him at points in the book when he recognizes that, in fact, her illness is sometimes stronger than her love for him. 
And there are some very painful scenes where he has he he just is like, why don't you love me more than you love drinking? Yeah, and I think that's a very truthful thing. I think a lot of children of addicts feel that. There's something about children and their resiliency that I wanted to capture in the book, and also their sort of intuition and their the way that children internalize the things that are wrong with their parents that actually have nothing to do with the child as something that can be lacking in them. So we see throughout the book that Shuggy tries to be quieter, brighter. He tries to sort of have the uh, sort of the foresight to see what his mother might need and to steer her almost. And alcoholism, uh, I have, I know, is a very exhausting thing mm -hmm. because it's incredibly unpredictable. <clears throat> no, I've known sort of alcoholism. I think sometimes with drug addiction, you often get one of two outcomes when you take the drugs. There's almost a controlled sort of reaction to it. But I've known, having loved many alcoholics in my life, um, you can have a very gregarious day. Someone can have a light drink. They can have a drink that makes them so embittered and full of rage and self-harm. Or it can be a, a day where they weep for three days. Or it can be a huge colossal party and everyone's having a great time and actually drink isn't a problem. And for a child like Shaggy, um, that's, a, that's the, the sort of the exhausting thing. You're always sort of on your guard. And all three of Agnes's children turn out to be incredibly watchful beings. And, and Leek, the middle child, the, the eldest son, sort of almost recedes back into the background, but he's always there and always just sort of scanning the room and, and keeping his eye on it. And that can be what it is like to love someone who's suffering with alcoholism. You never know if it's a party or if it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a funeral or whatever it's going to turn out to be. You take it as it comes. Well, they become, fear of it. they become detectives, don't they? Are the curtains open or shut? Is the tone of her voice happy or sad? Where's where's tonight going to go? And the, as you say, they're ever watchful. There are also scenes, not just Shuggy and his brother, but later on in the book, there's a, a girl called Leanne whose mm. story is really poignant and moving. Um, and she befriends Shuggy and her mother has uh, problems as well. And these children act as carers for their parents in the most intimate ways. And they see things that, that just destroy their child. They shouldn't, children shouldn't have to deal with these things. And I presume, again, these are things that you've seen happening in the world. These are not made up stories. Yeah, I, I mean, fiction allows you to sort of it's, wish fulfillment is not the right term because nobody wishes any of this, but it allows you to sort of um, to mold the things as you saw them or as you wish they would be. And so fictions and writing fiction is an incredibly healing thing when you grow up with this kind of trauma. There's an enormous amount of trauma in the pages of this book. I'm often asked about sort of like working class writers and working class stories. And I think it's incredibly important, but not necessarily just because of the who the where or the when we're writing about, but also sometimes the how we write it um, is important to add to sort of voices and to literature. Because Leanne and Annie, as well as another kid, is a really important sort of device for me. I never really knew, although I felt incredibly isolated as a kid and that growing up in a working class community where everyone had the same thing, many people were suffering through the same things. You couldn't leave your front door and get in a car and go to an office and be by yourself all day. You went out, you get in an elevator and you met 32 people by the time you made the ground floor from the 16th floor to the down. So I've always known the sense of a collective and Shuggy in a way, the writing of Shuggy is about that. It's not just about sort of like looking at this. I could have written a very sort of tight book that was about Agnes and Shuggy and just this relationship. But really, it was a lot of people suffering and a lot of people going through the same thing. And Leanne and Annie our, our way of sort of like pulling back and saying, hey, wait a minute, mm -hmm. there's a, a community in crisis here. And there are this is a thing that affects a lot of children. And I, I've always known that. Poverty means a lack of education and a lack of opportunity. And that place where addiction meets poverty is really, really unforgiving. Another thing that struck me in the book, um, because, you know, Agnes is raising the family on benefits um, when the mm -hmm. money doesn't go to the off-license, and um, what really struck me is that for vulnerable, this vulnerable community, how quickly sex becomes currency, whether it's the women or even the children. They learn to trade their physical selves to get 
to the next day. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. It's not only just sort of that sex is a currency, it's that the physical is sometimes all you have. And something that I wanted to show in the book, we actually owe, it's a bit like the Nina Simone song, you know, I have my hands, I have my feet and my body. We start out in the book where we see Shuggy at 16 and we don't know why he's living alone. And I didn't want it, to, I don't want it to be a spoiler, but he is surviving any means he, and by any way he can. And then we sort of go through the book and we see Agnes also do the same. And for a woman like Agnes that would have sort of come into her youth in the 50s and 60s, you know, she would have um, been happy to have sort of raised herself as a future wife and as a, and as a mother. And that would have been fine for her. You know, she, would, she wouldn't have finished high school. She wouldn't have necessarily thought about hobbies. She would have liked a party. She would have liked a good time. She would have liked a close circle of friends. But having a lovely home, having a husband that adored her and, and you know, and sort of building a life like that would have been enough. But when your husband doesn't adore you, when the government sweeps the legs out from under all the men and you can no longer sort of count on that tentpole moment of the week when a wage packet comes home, then poverty for sure leaves women like Agnes with no options. Um, because it's, you know, it's too late to like go to law school and, and even finish high school and do all of these things. These are things that wouldn't, that didn't occur to, to the women I grew up around. They didn't see that as an option. And that's sad, um, but it's also true. But I sort of show Agnes then sort of being a victim of what she has and what she can offer. But then we also go back. Her mother, through the first half of the book, Lizzie, has been incredibly harsh on Agnes. She sees her addiction and her sort of wanting things as just a, a weakness in her nature, almost like a spoiled thing. And, and she thinks if Agnes could just sort herself out, she should go to the chapel more often. She should just mm -hmm. give herself a shake. And of course, we know now it's a mental health issue. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a escapism issue. It's a poverty issue. But she sort of says, just sort of almost slap yourself, give yourself a slap and sort it out. Um, and in fact, we then, I wanted to have a scene and I had a lot of conversations with my editor to sort of go back to Lizzie's youth and also show Lizzie in a place where she had to do whatever it is she needed to survive. Because yeah. that's how life is when you have to get by. You almost don't think about it, Lee. And it's funny, it's like it changes lenses depending on who's looking at that thing. But I think if ever you've been in that situation, the only thing that matters is getting through it and sort of surviving. And so you find yourself in those situations. And it's only when we're not there and we look back and we're like, oh, I can't believe someone would do that. But of course you would do that. You yeah. Know, of course, most of us would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Lizzie's backstory, which I will not spoil for readers, is, <laughs> is, was quite, I was like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew this would, had yeah. happened? Um, and, and as you said, um, the impermanence of their lives, they're buying things on tick. They buy clothes that actually wear out or get ruined before they finish paying for them. They, they, don't, they don't have anything. They, you mm -hmm. know, they, as you say, they just have themselves. There's so little to cling to. And they're at the government's mercy. Yeah, and that's really true. And, and I mean, I didn't set out to write a political book or actually to write a book about poverty, Lee, believe it or not. I set out to write, I set out to write a love story mm -hmm. and to attribute, just to show what this sort of thing was like. And the power of like unconditional love because that love is tested many times in the book. Um, and I think that's always the strongest kind of love when you really sort of test it. But of course, growing up poor in Glasgow in the eighties is an incredibly political statement. It's a, it really is sort of says a lot about poverty and, and there's a trap to poverty. Even as the women are happy and having a party in the beginning of the book, when they buy school uniforms for their kids or buy bikinis, something that should cost 20 pounds costs 25 pounds from the catalog. And then by the time you pay it off, it costs 45 pounds. And so it is a trap and it's making everything worse for them. And it's also an economy. You know, Darren McGarvey writes about it really well. Lots of people make money off of people being in poverty. Um, it's an important part of our economy, believe it or not. But I just wanted to sort of show that. And you know, even when Agnes sort of finds herself in the mining town in the middle of the book and she's in this council house that she thought would house all of her dreams and it turns out to be a place of like physical and emotional sort of isolation, she's more or less marooned, right? And the tide goes away and leaves her. She had no power to just be like, I don't want to live here. You know, let me go rent a van and move a van and go get another house because you go into council waiting lists, you need all kinds of things. And so I just wanted to show what that was like. Although you do, you have a scene, I... I didn't know that people, there was a sort of an underground network of people swapping accommodation. And there is yeah. a moment in the book when 
she and Shaggy are going to move out of the pit town and into town, into Glasgow, and they're filled with hope, and there are scenes, this idea of reinvention. And funnily enough, you and I have both swapped. We're not in our native countries. We've literally yeah. swapped countries. And so I think we both know that feeling of, well, maybe in this new place, all the bad things will go away. And, I, you know, there's a wonderful scene where Shuggy's, um, decide, they're deciding what to pack, and he picks up a skirt, and Agnes says, no, I'm not her anymore. I'm not the woman that wears that skirt. But wherever you go, there you are, you know? The, and, and they learn this the hard way. And, but the thing is, I, I was wondering as I was reading that, do you think that not having hope is worse than having hope and being disappointed? No, I think you always have to have hope. And I think part of the problem and part of the reason why people turn to addiction is because they lose that hope or they sort of, they, they are living in a world where the government changes. Uh, you know, I think most of us can bear an awful lot of things if we think tomorrow or the next year will be a little better. We will work as hard as we can. But when you have 26% of men, working class men put out of work and it stays there for a decade, and then Agnes is in a council house which she doesn't like. She can't see even these small things that she wants Lee getting coming to her. And the book spans about 20 years of her life and it doesn't come to her. And so, you know, I think that's when you start to, when you lose hope is when the other things sort of creep in. And we know that's important with addiction. So I think it's better to have hope and be disappointed. It's sadder, but it's better. But you're right, everyone has that sort of feeling that, um, you know, we all like a fresh start in life, especially when things don't seem to have been going right. Mm -hmm. And Agnes and Shuggy deserve that fresh start. It, it struck home, it struck a chord with me. And, you know, and as you say, there's this massive sense of isolation. And for Shuggy, it's not simply, I mean, for one thing, whenever you grow up in a house with secrets, one learns to play a game. You're somebody else out in public because you can't tell the truth. And that's isolating. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's very well spoken, because he's almost, he's not quite an only child, but he's there's such a significant age gap. And his his emerging sexuality and all these isolating factors over and over and over again. Um, he almost has to invent himself, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And actually, that's the thing that Agnes has this pride that we spoke about at the beginning that is a, you know, she's a, the thing about council living or benefits living is actually your identity, your situation is identical to the people on the left and the right of you. You know, there is no sort of like capitalist movement there. You can't make more, bring more in. You get your house as a council house and your wages or your benefits are the same. And so Agnes yet sort of affects these airs and graces that sort of <laughs> isolate her from people that actually might be her friends ultimately. And Shuggy is infected by that. You know, she raises her a doting son to have that same sort of pretension. And oftentimes in the book, he speaks like a, a woman and they turn to him, they say, even his brother says, you sound like an old woman. And it's true, you know, it's sort of, it's in that way. But I wanted their own natures to be part of their isolation. But I also wanted the two characters to be isolated. I didn't think there was anything, I didn't really want to write just a book about Agnes's sort of situation where they all sort of witnessed it and played a part in it. Mm -hmm. I felt like these were two people, the isolation, I hoped their love for each other was stronger because they were both sort of clinging together in their own sort of ways. And I thought that was the, that for me is the, the kernel of the book. It's not a book about poverty or addiction or about Glasgow even. It's a book about love. It's a book about these two people trying to survive. Yeah. Now you have another reading for us, don't you? Would you could we do I that do. now? And then we'll move on to some more questions. I have loads more questions. There's some audience questions. But I'd love to hear the second reading. I chose this, this is actually also from the beginning of the book. Agnes, as we spoke about, uh, is in a position and a generation where men have a huge effect on the fates of women. And she has married across sectarian lines, a Protestant taxi driver. She's a Catholic woman and she's married a Protestant taxi driver, essentially because he's very gallus. He is charming. He has a way to seduce. He's not especially handsome, but he has a way to seduce and, and charm women off their feet. Um, we're seeing Shug really for the first time here, that's Shuggy's father, and he is a taxi driver, he drives a black hackney around Glasgow. This is just an introduction to Glasgow, really. Chapter 3. That summer, when it finally came, was close and damp. For a nocturnal man, the days had felt too long. The long daylight was like an inconsiderate guest, the northern gloam reluctant to leave. Big Shug always found the summer days hardest to sleep through. The sun brightened the thick curtains till they were a vibrating violet, 
and the children were always noisiest when they were happiest, the door constantly going with mouthy teenagers from other flats and women in strappy sandals traipsing the hall carpet, clacking pink feet and pink gums at all hours. As night finally fell, Big Shuck pulled his black hackney round in a small tight circle. It spun like a fat dog chasing its tail and headed out of the Sight Hill estate. Seeing the lights of Glasgow, he relaxed back into the seat, and for the first time that day, his shoulders fell from around his ears. For the next eight hours, the city was his, and he had plans for it. He wiped the window and got a good look in the wing mirror. Smiling to himself, he thought how smashing he looked. White shirt, black suit, black tie. It was a bit much for work, Agnes had said, but then she said altogether too much these days. As the smile travelled through his body, he wondered whether taxi driving was in his blood. Between him and his brother Rascal, it was practically a family business. His father would have enjoyed it too, had the shipbuilding not killed him first. Shug pulled up at the lights under the shadow of the Royal Infirmary and watched a gaggle of nurses smoke a crafty fag. He watched them rub their pink arms in the cold night air and shelf their tits over tight folded arms. He smiled slowly and watched himself react in the mirror. Yeah, night shift definitely suited him best. He liked to roam alone in the darkness, getting a good look at the underbelly. Out came the characters shellacked by the grey city, years of drink and rain and hope holding them in place. His living was made by moving people, but his favourite pastime was watching them. He hated going bald. He adjusted the mirror lower so that he couldn't see the reflection of his bare head. He found his long, thick moustache and sat absentmindedly stroking it like a favourite pet. Under it, his spare chin wobbled. He tilted the mirror back up. The Glasgow streets were shiny with rain and streetlights. The, the infirmary nurses didn't linger, flicking half-smoked fags into the puddles and tottering back inside. Shug sighed and turned the taxi past town head and pointed down towards the city centre. He liked the drive from Sight Hill. It was like a descent into the heart of the Victorian darkness. The closer you got to the river, the lowest part of the city, the more the real Glasgow opened up to you. There were hidden nightclubs tucked under shadowy railway arches and blacked out windowless pubs where old men and women sat on sunny days in sweaty, pungent purgatory. It was down near the river that the skinny, nervous-faced women sold themselves to men in polished estate cars, and sometimes it was here that the polis would later find chopped up bits of them in black bin bags. The north bank of the Clyde housed the city mortuary, and it seemed fitting that all the lost souls were floating in that direction so as to be no trouble when their time blessedly came. Oh, beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful book. I have a belief that we continue to have relationships with our loved ones and with our past, even though they're gone, they're done. Um, and I'm wondering, how, did writing this book, has it altered your relationship to your late mother, to your past self, to Glasgow? That's a, that's a wonderful question. I think so. I think, first of all, the, the desire to sit down and write the book was because the boy I was and the man I am living in New York City felt like two different people and I didn't want them to be. I, you know, I, I want to be one whole person. And so bringing those two parts together was a way to reconcile my childhood with, my, with who I am as an adult. My mother, my own mother died when I was in school, like I said, so she's been gone for 30 years now. And it's true, I grieve for her all the time. I think there's something especially tragic when a can very young and when they're snatched away without. And so in a way, Shuggy Bane, I think, even though the characters are fictional, is a way of sort of, of saying goodbye to my mother. Mm. But also, it's a way sort of of bringing myself home. Um, I, you know, Glasgow, as a young gay boy, Glasgow is a super cosmopolitan city. It is uh, a hothouse for art and creativity. And I think even now I know it to be somewhere where sort of gay life flourishes. But in the 80s, poor living on a housing scheme, it was, not a, it was not a great place for me. So Glasgow, I've always loved Glasgow, but Glasgow had a tough time with me as a kid. I, it didn't let me fit in and it didn't let me find my place there. I couldn't live in peace and or be myself. Mm. And so I think also writing this book is a way for me to find a way home in a way, and sort of uh, keep staying near me. So here you are, officially an overnight success, and a, <laughs> and a proper overnight success, because like every other overnight success, you've been working your socks off at this for over a decade. <laughs> I heard that 
one version of this novel was like, ep of ep it's a long book anyway, but I heard there was a single space version that went to many, many, many hundreds of pages. How did you, how did you wrestle the book into submission? How did you take control of it? Well, well, thanks for acknowledging that uh, I've had a lot of success this year, but it's been about 12 years of work. You know, before I wrestled the book into submission, I actually didn't want it to submit. I wrote the book and it became 900 pages single space just for the love of writing the book. You know, I didn't even know it would be published. Um, I was a kid that always wanted to be a writer as a kid, but growing up when I grew up, it was just not seen as something boys like me do. You know, it seemed as very academic. There's a little, something a little bit feminine about it. And so, you know, my brothers, my uncles, the men I grew up around, it wasn't just something, it just wasn't something that kids like me did. And so, in fact, I went into textile manufacturing, which then broadened into fashion, which then broadened to New York. Um, but um, sort of the book, writing the book for me was a secret pleasure. It was the best part of my week. It was the best part of my life. Mm -hmm. And I would go to work, I would write before I went to work, I would go to work and then I would come home at night. And all day long, I was talking to my characters and I was thinking about them and I was, um, I was longing to be with them. And so writing the book for me and allowing it to be 900 pages was, I loved it um, because that's all I wanted to do. And then spending 12 years with it, part of that was because I couldn't let it go. Hmm. And so it was only sort of, it was reluctantly that I wrestled it into submission because, um, you know, I was just enjoying the writing of it. I'm wondering how the, um, your art background and training feeds your writing because I'm guessing that you have developed over the years a brilliant eye for pattern, for structure, for design. How do the two disciplines feed each other? Was it useful? I mean, I wasn't consciously aware of it being useful until hindsight, until I talked to yourself and talked to other people. And so it wasn't like I sat there and thought about that. But I knew when I first started writing, I was sort of aping all my favorite authors, as all writers do, and none of it felt right to me. And so it took a moment for me to sort of like unlock, find that sort of where the work starts to come and it feels only like my work. And, and part of doing that was leaning into my visual skills, I think. Visual arts is all about communication also, but it's communicating in a different medium. And so I was, it did set me up to sort of create these scenes and to think about things uh, very thoroughly. You know, I'm very detail orientated and I can see and I can sense and I can create things visually. And so translating that to the page was important. But then it also sort of supported what I wanted to do with the book because I didn't want to, as the term goes, as Darren McGarvey uses, I didn't want to create a poverty safari where people could sort of skim and just sort of look at this thing. And so using my visual skills or my ability to create worlds, I wanted everyone to be in the room with Shuggy and Agnes or Eugene or Leanne yeah. and physically be there. And doing that, the best way to do that is to create the world for them and then to invite the reader in. You wrote a piece for The New Yorker, a short story called Found Wanting, which mm. again, I think, has a basis in uh, the, the pre-internet world of trying to find like-minded people that one might go out with. And it talks mm -hmm. about writing epic, long letters to um, prospective suitors, um, mm -hmm. which the character does, but I think you did as well, if I understand your, your um, biography correctly. And, and but what but what happens in these letters is one builds a character, and I'm just mm. wondering, do you think that also fed into your desire to be a writer and what you learned about um, how to create a character? Well, that's the thing anyone's asked me that. Thank you. Um, I love that question. I think so. I think I've been writing those letters. You're right. When I came up as a gay man, it wasn't even that I was looking to date people. I was just looking for people like me. Um, and how I did that was actually by answering personal ads in the back uh, pages of a newspaper. So this is like 1991, 1992. They weren't CD, they weren't sexual, they were just pen pal ads. Mm. And so I spent an awful lot of my youth in this sort of correspondence. And of course, like considering dating apps now where you make up your mind in like a second and you can see everything you want to see, <laughs> these are incredibly innocent spaces to be. Mm -hmm. And you can lie, and you can create, and you can embroider, and you can, you know, you can sort of... Um, you also have to seduce in a way, you know, you have to sound interesting and you have to invite the person to want to keep corresponding with you. And it was a wonderful, it wasn't at the time always wonderful, it's wonderful in hindsight because it's incredibly innocent. But that was why I wanted to write that story because 
I have a lot of young gay friends now who, first of all, don't know the meaning of isolation because we can see everyone on social media and you can see people like yourself anywhere in the world. Um, but they also didn't really sort of understand that long protracted courtship or the idea that you would write 20 mm. letters to someone before you would buy a train ticket and go to their town and meet them. And so that was that for me was uh, the reason for writing Fun One thing. Somebody would like to know, how did you chance on the name Shuggy Bane? Because it has such a poetic ring to it. Actually, Shuggy was a name that always stuck with me. There was a kid on my house in Scheme and I heard the name Shuggy before I met the kid and Shuggy was such a sweet word to me. It sounds like hug, it sounds like sugar. Um, and then I met this kid who was about the ages of my big brother and he was a small time criminal. He was, the, he was a very small man. He was about five foot tall, but he was incredibly hard. And those two sort of things together just seared the name Shuggy into my mind. And so I knew that Shuggy was always going to be called Shuggy. And then when I was thinking about Bane or thinking about the family name, I was thinking about burden. I was thinking about hardship and, and sort of what to call them. And so Shuggy Bane just sort of came out of that. But funnily enough, I didn't know what Agnes was called until about eight years into the book. Um, and she had many names. She had many sort of every woman Catholic names. She was Kathleen. She was, you know, Eileen. She was all of these different things. For a period, she was actually called Lady. And we were never going to know her real name because I was thinking about how my grandmother would even say to my mother, who do you think you are, lady? And like, you always heard that in Glasgow. Yeah. Who do you, what are you up to, lady? Who do you think you are? And it was a way of sort of knocking people down that had grand ideas. So we were just going to know her as lady. And actually it was much, much later that sort of Agnes came to me and it just felt right, obviously being the Lamb of God. And then I was inspired by the, the, the martyrdom of St. Agnes in Rome and, and that features in the book. Wow. Now, here's another one. I've reached that age. I have to, I have to zoom in. Okay. Um, Me too. Did you feel different when you'd finished the book? Did, the book write, did writing the book change you? The writing the book has changed me enormously. Writing the book was healing. Um, and uh, even when I wrote some very sort of traumatic things or very heartbreaking things, even to me, um, uh, it was still healing. Like ultimately, overall, it let me sort of cleanse and pull some feelings out and look at some things closely. Um, and when publishing the book becomes a slightly more of a sort of traumatic event because to share, especially for a West Coast, West Coast of Scotland man, to share so many feelings and emotions and uh, sort of a bit of yourself, it's just not something we're raised to do, I think. And also it's, it's just traumatic. It's traumatic for any debut novelist to suddenly put their book out into the world, especially when it's such a personal book. But the greatest thing I think that's been for me is the feeling that Shuggy and Agnes now don't belong to me. Um, mm -hmm. Although they're my creation, the best thing I ever feel is when someone sort of says they've taken them almost. Taken is not quite the right word, but when a reader says the characters feel like they belong to them and they feel like a responsibility and people say to me, what is Shuggy doing now? Or what is Agnes doing now? And how are they? And that for me is, is, is all I ever wanted to achieve. Yeah. Or when somebody like me gets mad at one of the characters, that means they're, they're really, it's like, why did they do, oh, I could slap them. <laughs> and then you think, I am really totally invested in this novel. Yeah. But, but let me ask you, what's been, apart from the fact that you published it at all, what's been the most surprising aspect of the Shuggy experience for you so far? I thought I had written an incredibly sort of specific, intimate book uh, about time and place and people. And the most surprising thing is actually it's a universal story. And so I actually need to start talking about it a little bit more like that. The amount of people from California, from Detroit, you being American, so many people grow up in these circumstances and we never see ourselves reflected in fiction um, or rarely see ourselves reflected in fiction. And like you said earlier, there's so much shame to having addiction and poverty at home that we tend to not want to share those stories or the world tells us it's a dirty thing and don't mention it. And so the, the most surprising and the greatest thing has been learning how sort of many of us, there's more of us than we think there are, and how much of a sort of a universal story it is. Yeah. I'm going to read this um, audience question. I don't know who it's from. As someone who was born in the 1950s, not that far mm. from where you have set this book, I can remember many women like Agnes and their dysfunctional families. At that time, mm. they were in filthy tenements with outside toilets, if any, and living in extreme poverty. But they were moved to these high-rise flats like Sight Hill for a better life. Where did it all go wrong? 
<laughs> well, I don't know. That's um, absolutely correct. Exactly. <laughs> that might be a question for uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, maybe rather than myself. But um, it, I don't know. I, I can only give you a personal anecdote and say that absolutely my own family were a proud work class, honest family. Everyone worked. Everyone went out for jobs. Uh, we didn't have much, but everybody brought a wage pack at home, the men and the women. And we came out of Germiston before I was born, and we ended up in Sight Hill. And everyone was excited. The legend is that it was before I was born, but everyone was excited to be in Sight Hill. It seemed futuristic. We had an indoor toilet. We had heating in the house. We, you know, and then, of course, we now know that, um, you know, high-rise flats are a rough place for people to be, especially when there's also poverty or addiction starts to seep in or crime. And by the time I'm born, Site Hill was already on its way sort of down and people were trying to move out honest. All families were trying to move out, you didn't have to be honest. And so I don't quite know what it went wrong, but the amazing thing about Glasgow is there's almost like a, there was a failing of like government policy to keep men in work. And then also well-intentioned, but failing sort of like housing policies. And how those two things sort of collided have had huge sort of health effects, uh, mental health effects, and also addiction effects on the city. Was it, uh, because I was born in New York, was it confusing to, how long did it take you to adjust to the fact that in Manhattan, where you're living, high-rise buildings are quite often the most luxurious dwellings there are, rather than the marginal housing? How, how long did you have to adjust to that? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of see, but the one thing that sort of keeps me sort of balanced that I see more commonality maybe is that actually I live in a tenement flat. I live in the East Village. And so I have neighbors across the way. We have four stories and I live in like a very narrow East Village tenement. But at the end of the road is housing projects, Americans call them, which would be Site Hill, which would be a housing scheme. And so I think I'm just gravity. I'm comfortable there. And so I actually see more similarities than sort of mm. a know than the extreme wealth of the city and just are you aware of the the oft denied actual class differences in in america i mean they're very blatant to me here as an american living in britain i'm wondering about the reverse dynamic yeah i think part of why i was drawn to america is because i felt like i couldn't ever escape the class system in the uk i think no matter how hard i studied or i worked i was always sort of perceived as this sort of poor kid from Glasgow. And so there was something, even in writing a book, the sort of the way critics in America have approached it is they see it as a book. Whereas critics in the UK sort of can't help but sort of look at the, the book through the filter of class. And so even then it's just these sort of different ways to do it. And so New York is just such an amazing place for people of all backgrounds to congregate yeah. and bring cultural work. And I like the freedom of nobody really knowing where I came from. Yeah, it's very different from the rest of the United States. Um, yeah, yeah. Here, here's another audience question. <laughs> Shuggy Bain is an absolutely super novel, I agree. But non-Glasgow, non-Scottish words like snuck and, and gotten feature briefly in the narrative. Were there difficulties writing in an authentic... Were there difficulties writing an authentic 1980s Scottish novel in an era of international language? That's interesting because it has, we have sort of melded, haven't we? Totally. And I still find um, broad Scots words and especially Glaswegian words are some of the lesser known words sort of internationally. They, sometimes they sneak in, but they don't. I, because I wanted to write an authentic book with as much dignity as I could put into a hard situation, I had to be true to it. And so... I wouldn't ever imagine wanting to write a book in Glasgow about working class Glasgow without using the beautiful language. And mm -hmm. I find Glaswegians are really inventive and quite poetic with how they express themselves. Sometimes it's incredibly blunt. Sometimes it's really, you sort of step back and it paints this like really wonderful picture for you. Um, what was really interesting is, you know, I think as we are, like you say, as we're exploring all these other words in the world is like, I like the curiosity of readers when they sort of want to know what gallus means or glaket or smur or um, or that kind of thing. And I think that's like awesome. But there was a couple of times when through the editing process where I would clean up a sentence to try and make it a wee bit more accessible. Um, and my editor, who an American editor, would say, don't do it, just don't do it. Um, because actually the strength of the book is the specificity of the book, I think, the authenticity of it. And so I was glad to have someone like that in my corner. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this. 
for many years, you wrote Shuggy for yourself, by yourself. Nobody knew yeah. you. You didn't even show it to your partner. It was your private, private thing. It's published. Yeah. We all are madly in love with it. It's, it's on lists for awards. I know you're working on your second novel. How, how different is the experience of writing, knowing now that people know you're writing, knowing that people are, can't wait to read the next thing? Do you feel differently about the process? Is it more nerve-wracking? What's going on with you now? I, I, that's a good question. Um, I was fortunate that the, um, in a way that my second novel, I was almost complete with by the time Shuggy published. And so I don't, the second novel, I think you'll find, I hope you find has that sort of, uh, I don't know what it, I don't know how to explain it, but it feels like I was only again, pleasing myself or doing it for myself, pleasing myself, such a funny word. I was only doing it for my own sort of gratification. Mm -hmm. um, it is hard now sort of like in writing. And so I just like to return to that place and not to rush the work. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm still wrestling with it. I don't know. I have a very intelligent answer for you, Lee. But, but I uh, guess what I'm asking is, do you feel more pressure on you or not? No, I, I, I don't. Because the truth is, is all you can ever do as a writer is write the book that you want to write and the best book that you can write. Anything that follows with the book. We, I was talking to my agent about this yesterday. You do have to sort of relinquish control, whether readers like it, whether it gets nominated for a prize, whether it finds its way in the world you don't have the writer doesn't have much control over that all you can do is write the very best book and so the thing i'm trying to do just now is sort of like a retreat into that private space and focus just on the writing so is it finished or are you still fine-tuning it i think the second book will be with you shortly We'll look forward to that second novel, whose title has subsequently been announced as Loch Awe. And we hear that Douglas's third novel is already also well underway, so lots to look forward to from him. Don't forget, you can purchase Shuggy Bain from our website, so do rush to do that. That's bookshop.wigtownbookfestival.com. Well, we hope you enjoyed this slightly different episode. Thanks so much again to Lee, and of course, again, huge congrats to Douglas. We've got a few more episodes in store before we take a break for Christmas, but until the next time we're in your ears, take care for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.